Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hey everyone, this is Natalie and I'm thrilled to welcome to our show, Dr. Nathaniel Wong, immunologist and CEO of Replicate Bioscience. Replicate is designing and delivering RNA-based treatments to revolutionize the practice of medicine and bring better access to more therapeutics. Replicate exited stealth mode this September 2021 with a $40 million Series A to launch. Nathaniel, welcome. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Natalie. Thanks for inviting me on. Thank you for being here with us. So to start us off, you have a PhD in immunology and have a long career in immunology and drug development, specifically development in immunotherapies for oncology, infectious disease, and other therapeutic areas. Can you tell us more about your founding team and how you came together to form Replicate? Yeah, absolutely. So as a little bit of history of Replicate, we were co-founded in early 2020, February, uh, between myself and Andrew Gill. He, of course, goes by Andy. So we'd previously collaborated together on this type of technology in the past, something called self-replicating RNAs at previous companies. That included when I was back at a local company here in San Diego called Synthetic Genomics, focused a lot on different types of synthetic biology. And Andy was at Novartis Vaccines and Diagnostics. And together we were working on different types of RNA vaccines, uh, interestingly enough for pandemic responses uh, several years before COVID-19 became a real problem, as well as cancer immunotherapy. So, you know, over the years, we'd been working together on different types of RNA technologies and began to feel like they had a lot of limitations that were causing them to not be developed as rapidly into different types of medicines. And so we started to ask ourselves the question, and we were doing this over lunch one day. I remember as at the Farmer and the Seahorse um, locally here <laughs> in San Diego and talking about if we wanted to create a new platform from scratch, what would that actually look like? And how would we be able to do that in a way that really fixed a lot of the drawbacks of the current iterations of the technology? And as with any good platform technology, you need a good therapeutic area to apply it to. And so we decided to get together with one of our former colleagues, Kim Lyerly, who's a professor at Duke University, to apply this type of technology to drug resistance in in the oncology space. Oh, that is so great. I think it really is true, right? Sometimes starting from scratch allows for the most novel and very best ideas to form. I, I love love that story. So given the COVID pandemic, I'm sure many of our listeners are becoming more familiar with RNA-based vaccines, such as those that were developed by Pfizer and Moderna, but exactly what is RNA and why is it so important? So imagine all of the cells in your body is containing a giant container of Legos, and those Legos are the building blocks of different types of proteins. 
And the RNA itself is the instruction manual that our cells use to build different types of proteins using those individual Legos. And they do this as part of their normal function and for their own survival. And so what we're doing with RNA-based vaccines is we've created that instruction manual in a test tube, and we've delivered that instruction manual to our own body cells, and that instructs them how to create a pathogen protein from the SARS coronavirus 2 strain to help educate the immune system how to fight off any future exposures uh, to that type of infection. And so... A key aspect of these RNA instruction manuals are they're 100% natural. They do not interfere with any of the other cellular functions that you have, and they degrade harmlessly after about two days. So imagine with that instruction manual, if you have a bunch of toddlers running around uh, the cells, spilling their juice on everything, and <laughs> it gets torn to shreds in a couple of days. And if I make any toddler references, it's because I have a four and a six-year-old at home. And so these things are very uh, front of mind for me. I love it. And those analogies help our listeners as well. That's funny. Yeah. And to go back to the um, second part of your question, which is, you know, why it's so important is with RNA, we can give all sorts of instruction manuals to build different types of proteins that can be important for human health. And before, and the way that medicines are currently made now is we need to laboriously manufacture these outside of the body in different types of steel vats or in different types of manufacturing settings, and then find ways to actually get them into the body of a person in relevant amounts to help tackle some sort of disease. And so what RNA really allows us to do is turn each of the body's cells into uh, the protein factory that creates a medicine that, that helps somebody feel better. That's great. And I have to tell you, the, the toddlers running around spilling juice and the Lego analogy really do work for me. Uh, and <laughs> the, the beauty of RNA based vaccines really is that they're 100% natural and do not interfere with any cellular functions. It's just incredible. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the history of RNA-based treatments and what challenges might have been plaguing or stifling innovation in this area? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what surprises a lot of people to learn is that RNA technology is not a new technology at all. So scientists have been working out ways to use RNA to express different types of proteins dating back to the 1970s. And some of the earliest examples of expressing therapeutic proteins or using RNA for vaccines date back to the late 1980s and the 1990s and happened across a lot of different universities, including the Salk Institute down here in San Diego. And what was really lacking was a way to industrially scale this type of technology so that it could be used more therapeutically as part of drug development. And then starting around the mid-2000s, I think scientists and a lot of these were based up in the Pacific Northwest or in British Columbia, and different types of engineers worked out ways to be able to scale the modern-day version of this technology. And in point of fact, our co-founder, Andy Giel, was one of the first to put the modern-day version of an RNA vaccine uh, delivered in a fat bubble into animals. And that was done in uh, 2012 uh, and was really funded by uh, DARPA, part of the DOD in the U.S. government. Oh, wow. And then from there, it was off to the races for a lot of different companies. A major limitation of the technology is that because that instruction manual falls apart after 48 hours, 
you only get a small amount of protein that's created in the cell. And so that small burst of protein wasn't enough to have a therapeutic effect for a lot of different types of vaccines. So people had previously tried to use it for influenza, for Zika virus, for some other indications, and it just wasn't working out. And so prior to the pandemic, some people were actually wondering whether this technology could ever scale to levels of global production and whether it could ever produce enough protein in somebody's cells to actually have a therapeutic effect. And the technology, in a sense, was waiting to be taken behind the barn and shot. And there was that much skepticism around it. And so we were incredibly lucky with COVID-19 that you only need a very small amount of protein to create a strong immune response. We managed to thread that needle with this technology. But we did manage to do it to the benefit of everybody globally. And from there, it really showed that you were able to de-risk the technology and you could create it at scales that were sufficient for global distribution. And at that point, it really became a question of could we improve the biology enough to open up a lot of new indications to fix some of those limitations and not so much a question of whether this technology could be produced or whether it would be safe in humans. And so now there are many companies, ours amongst them, who are working diligently to try to engineer and create the next generation of RNA technologies that really improve the amount of protein that's created in cells that lasts for a lot longer period of time. And when I say that we're trying to make substantial improvements, I don't mean doubling the amount of protein, tripling amount the amount of protein. I'm talking about improving it by hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands in terms of the amount of protein that you produce in each individual cell. And so that's where I think that we're making a great amount of headway. Gosh, well, all I can say is thank goodness that we had RNA that it only takes a very small amount of the protein to trigger that strong COVID-19 immune response. And, and now that the technology is proven, you know, at such a monumental scale, we do look forward to how seeing how not just replicate, but others in your space will be improving this technology. Now I want to, talk a little bit more about this um, notion of access. How has the development and the implementation of this technology impacted accessibility to medical care? It's a great question. And I think to answer that question, it would be helpful to have a little bit of context on how things are currently made. So as drugs and biologics are traditionally manufactured, Again, people undergo this laborious and expensive process where you create proteins in steel vats. Those need to be scaled up. Sometimes they're two stories tall almost in, oh, in how big some of these biofactories get. You have to figure out ways of purifying the protein away from any potential contaminants. And that takes a significant amount of time and money, as you can imagine, to do this. And you need to have this type of process set up for every single protein that you end up producing. And so while there are some commonalities between some of the processes, for the most part, you need to re-engineer a lot of this process over and over and over again. The other thing to take into account here is proteins are normally made in the organism itself. And so we try to capture the way that organisms do it outside of the body. But with some proteins, we just can't capture the way that it's done. Uh, we'll never be able to do it as efficiently, and in some cases, can't do it at all. 
we can't do things as nice as nature can do them ultimately. And so that's become a real limitation where some proteins just can't be made, even if we do believe that they would have a therapeutic effect. So this takes us to where RNA can really make a big impact on this space. So the beautiful part about RNA is, again, we're using our own bodily cells to create that protein itself. So we don't need to create that laborious uh, process. All we need to do is create that instruction manual that we're able to give to those cells. And so what that ultimately means is that there are more avenues to more rapidly develop treatments and bring those treatments to patients. And in the process, a lot of this can also reduce the costs ultimately. And I think that uh, in speaking with a lot of different patient advocates, a topic that often creates a lot of frustration for them is that in the process of moving towards precision healthcare, this has often created treatments that have become inaccessible to patients, whether it's because of their complexity or because of the enormous cost. I mean, this is something that you can see with the development of different types of cell therapies, especially in the oncology space. And so RNA has the ability to change all of that, especially if we make these substantial improvements to its performance, like in the ways that we're taking with with self-replicating RNA. And, you know, this is something that our team is incredibly passionate about in creating better access to different types of treatments. Nathaniel, more more avenues to rapidly develop treatments and creating more access to all different types of treatment. You know, your team at Replicate and and really all of us should be so excited about that. And on the same token, there are a lot of fears and concerns around synthetic technologies and how they affect the human body. What do you think about the current communication surrounding synthetic technologies? And in your opinion, are people right to be concerned about it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question and one that I think we get a lot. So, you know, I'll turn around the first part of the question to you. So what do you think of when you uh, hear the term synthetic technology? What does it evoke? I think not real, something that's not naturally created. Something fake, right? Yeah. You know, I know when we usually use terms like synthetic in different types of products, I mean, I think of something like synthetic wool or synthetic rubber. And I mean, people are hesitant sometimes to even use synthetic products in their clothing or other things. I mean, it seems kind of unnatural to put something like that in your body. So I I totally get that fear or that concern, especially at a visceral level. You know, I don't know what your impression is, but that's certainly what I see a lot of. But it would be good to get your perspective as well on, on what you think scares people about this potentially. Yeah, I think that uh, that a lot of the communication seems to be listen you you don't want to put something in your body that somehow isn't real, it isn't organic. Now, I uh, especially when it comes to this pandemic, I'll, <laughs> I'll do do anything that will help stop the spread, but I understand the differences that you're you know, you're describing that it's not really so much about, it's not like synthetic rubber, as you said, or, or something that's unnatural. And, you know, to ask another probing question, if, if you'll humor me. So that process that I described of traditional drug manufacturing, where you're making these things in these scale uh, steel vats of cell cultures, you're trying to purify this protein, you're trying to get away any contaminants, and you know, you're finding some way to deliver that to people. Does that sound 
particularly natural to you? Not at all. And this is something that people are very familiar with putting in their own bodies and and don't object to it. And perhaps because we don't attach the term synthetic to it. And I think what people are talking about when they say synthetic technologies, when they refer to things like RNA, is that, again, that's instruction manual itself is synthetic and the instruction manual itself is created in a test tube, but it's your own body cells that are creating that protein itself that's having that therapeutic effect. And from my perspective, there's nothing more natural than that. It's as close to nature as you can get outside of finding some other way to communicate with your cells. And so I think that while the term itself is very scary, I think what we're attempting to do with synthetic biology as it relates to RNA is actually get closer to nature than what most people typically put in their bodies, whether it's some kind of nutritional supplement or whether it's some kind of medicine that I think people are a lot less afraid of. Thank you for that explanation. It does make perfect sense to me. And, and I think that the comparison was also very helpful. And I will say it takes me back to your Lego analogy, which I also found so very helpful. What you know, it sounds like what you are delivering through this technology is, is really the, as you said, the instruction manual that your own cells can then use to build different proteins for survival. And as part of their natural function. And it really is incredible. And I think that it it is worth trying to clear up some of the misunderstandings and problems around the communication. So thank you. Before we move on though, yeah, I would like to be even handed about, you know, what we were just talking about with synthetic biology as well, because I think that part of the mistake that people make in science communication is they try to make things very black or white. And I know that if I was a skeptic and I was listening to this, I would probably be saying, okay, you're saying that what you're giving us is supposed to be very natural, but why do I feel bad when I receive something like an RNA vaccine? You know, I I don't know whether you ended up getting one of the RNA vaccines. I did. Which one did you end up getting? Pfizer. Yeah, I ended up getting the Moderna one. Did you have any bad responses to either dose? I just a sore arm. That was it. Well, you know, you're you're certainly luckier than I was. I was absolutely laid out by both of the doses. I had a fever. I had chills. I had fatigue. I was completely unable to move for for the day afterwards for each of them. So I know that it's supposed to be bad after just the second one, but it certainly was um, quite something after after both of them for me. So you know, I totally get that people are experiencing these, and you know, we're lucky. They're certainly. Um, far more rare side effects that people can suffer from there. But a lot of that is related to the fat bubble that we use to deliver the RNA. So it's not the RNA itself or the instruction manual itself that's doing it. And certainly there's a lot of effort in the industry to be able to reduce some of those side effects. And so part of what I was talking about earlier in the podcast, where I was saying that we're trying to massively reduce the amount of dose that people would need and do that by increasing the amount of protein that you get at any given dose would really reduce a lot of those side effects. Because I think that currently we're right up against the window of what's tolerable in terms of the way that we deliver this type of instruction manual into cells. And so I don't dispute any of 
the negative reactions and the adverse events that people get. You know, I think it's certainly scary, even as an immunologist who intimately understands, you know, what are the molecules that are causing me to feel this way? It still makes me feel rotten. And I still felt apprehensive before getting that second dose because I knew what was going to be coming. And so I absolutely get the hesitation that people have with this type of technology or any type of technology that makes you feel not so great. So, you know, I think it's important to be even handed about these things as well. Acknowledge them, acknowledge that there are side effects, acknowledge that we will continue to learn more as we do with any kind of medicine about how this may impact people and and try to correct some of those issues that they as they arise. But fundamentally, I think that we all believe that there's far more benefit to this than the drawbacks. But I think the part of the important piece here is to treat people as adults, to take these concerns seriously and to address them and to absolutely acknowledge when unexpected side effects may arise and not just treat people as being not sophisticated enough to know what might be going wrong with some of these. That's very fair. Yeah, thank you for that. You mind, I'm going to pivot us a little bit uh, to talk about clinical trials. And we do see quite a bit that biotech and pharma companies face challenges when it comes to clinical trial process. Can you share how you and your team plan to manage your clinical trial process and where you may, I don't know, double down on your current pipeline products? I think that one of the challenges, especially with emerging technologies, is the clinical path that you end up taking. I think that there's a lot of different risks that can arise. With any new technology, there's going to be the question of how do we manufacture this? And how do we manufacture this in a way that retains the potency of the material before it goes into humans? There's additional regulatory hurdles and questions with any technology that's going to be new that's put into people. And rightfully so, by the way. There should absolutely be very high bars with any new technology to make sure that it's going to be safe in humans. And so it's absolutely important to do that. And so one of the ways that we've tried to manage this process is by making sure that we've recruited people onto our team that have a lot of experience in the drug development process. And by that, I don't just mean generic drug development. I don't think it's enough for us to have people who are experts in RNA. I don't think it's enough for us to have people who are experts in those fat bubbles that we uh, capture the RNA with that's ultimately used for delivery. What we want is specific experts with drug development experience in combining these self-replicating RNAs in these fat bubbles and how to manufacture that and how to test those clinically. So. You know, I'm an expert in the drug development process of that from a preclinical perspective. Uh, my co-founder, Andy Giel, is an expert in that from uh, the manufacturing and technical operations perspective. And our other co-founder, Kim Lyerly, has been doing these types of early stage trials using this type of technology at Duke for a couple of decades. And so we have a lot of deep experience here to help reduce some of those compounded risks when it comes to your early stage uh, clinical testing. In terms of the different types of products that we have that uh, we're extremely excited about, you know, some of our initial products are going to be targeting acquired resistance or immunotherapy resistance in different types of cancers. 
And uh, drug resistance is something uh, that's a huge problem to, and a barrier to being able to have curative treatment of different types of cancers. So developing treatments that can help address that is something that our entire team is, is really excited about. And again, that's some of the imprint that you see from some of our co-founders at Duke. Yeah, well, others in the space are certainly recognizing your deep bench of expertise and your potential. And, and it was, we mentioned at the start of our podcast, you recently raised a series A round and you raised that series A round from ATP, a longstanding VC in the life sciences sector. What do you think they were attracted to when it comes to replicate and how did you reaffirm their beliefs? So as a little bit of history, I'd mentioned that I had been working at Synthetic Genomics and the chief technology officer at SGI is named Todd Peterson. And he was the chief scientific officer at the Allen Institute in Seattle after he left SGI. And Mike Ehlers, who's a venture partner and the chief scientific officer at ATP, was on the scientific advisory board for the Allen Institute. And so those two knew each other pretty well. And so Todd has always been a big fan of the technology and he had introduced me to Mike. And Mike had been closely following the RNA therapeutic space for a while. And so when Todd put us in touch, I think he heard the new ideas that we were putting forward at Replicate. And he really started to believe that Replicate's technology was a quantum leap in the RNA therapeutic space. And I certainly believe that we've already been making good on that promise and have been showing substantial increases in terms of the amount of protein we've been able to make. So if you set conventional RNA, such as found in the current RNA vaccines, as a gold standard to uh, a factor of one, I would say that we're starting to show improvements in animals of a thousandfold lower doses that would be achievable using our version of the technology. In terms of our relationship with ATP, from our end, there's a lot of capital available right now, which is which is good. But ATP brings a lot more than just funding to the table. We really view them as strategic partners. So in their model of co-founding, they end up putting a substantial amount of money up front as part of the investment. And that allows a lot of flexibility for nascent companies to really take a strategic view to build long-term for what's really best for positioning a company in a, in a pretty complex space with a lot of different competitors. And having a single funder, you know, allows us to kind of sidestep a lot of the complexity of dealing with syndicates and the time drain of, you know, fundraising roadshows, especially early on in the development of the technology. So those are absolutely something that will continue to be a part of the company as it grows and evolves. But as you're developing a technology and you need to advance it rapidly, I think being able to put your head down and focus on the science and the development of the company early on is, is fairly critical. In addition to that, I think that they have a model where they provide ongoing support in terms of management and offer a depth of science and access to quality relationships and operating skills that have been absolutely invaluable in terms of accelerating the technology. Everything is moving really quickly in this space right now. And even if you have the best idea in the world, if you're going to take too long to develop it, it just will never make it out of the heat from the starting line. And so I think it's important to be able to use all of those other aspects to accelerate the trajectory of a company. 
Well, congratulations. And ATP sounds like a perfect partner for Replicate and vice versa. Can you tell us, Nathaniel, about any expansion plans and the growth we may anticipate to see from your team in in 2022? We're currently rapidly expanding our team right now. We expect to double in size over the next few months or so. We are slated to enter into the clinic in the second half of next year with our first product, which we're really excited about and we hope demonstrates that we can move extremely rapidly, even with new technologies because of the experience level of our team. And while we're not saying a lot about it right now, I think that we also have our eyes on some select indications in infectious disease, which we think other people will be excited about. So, you know, stay tuned on that. Wow. First product is the end of 2022. That really is fast. Incredible. So let's look further forward than just end of 2022 and, and tell us about what you see on the horizon for the next five years or so. What changes in therapeutics and specifically immunology do you see? So I think where we are with RNA technology today is similar to the early days of recombinant proteins or antibodies or other types of biologics. That is to say that everyone is still trying to figure out exactly how to use the technology, what are the best use cases. And I think that there'll certainly be multiple winners that emerge in the space. So I definitely do not think that it's a zero-sum game. I don't think that anybody's uh, position to completely dominate the space and that you'll see a lot of emerging companies and exponential expansion over the next five to 10 years or so. And what I think you'll really start to see is that RNA is going to start to compete in more traditional markets against established technology and competitors, especially as uh, some of us in the field start to improve the current version of the technology in terms of the amount of, of protein that's able to be expressed. And In general, and more specifically, you'll see a movement beyond seasonal or pandemic infectious disease vaccines. And with these improved versions of the technology, I think you'll see it moving more into areas such as oncology, inflammatory diseases such as autoimmune disease, and then other more challenging infectious diseases. And so, you know, I think that a lot of us are very excited what the next five to 10 years really hold for for the tech. Well, I am excited as are our listeners no doubt. For us to find application of the technology for cancer and autoimmune diseases would truly be game-changing. Okay, Nathaniel, so one of the things that we always like to do is share practical tips with other founders and leaders. And so I'd love for you to tell our listeners what are some of the lessons or tips that you wish you had known earlier? That's an interesting question. So I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that it's important to try and maintain optimism uh, throughout the early stages of the process, especially if you're a first-time entrepreneur and realize that every first-time entrepreneur doesn't really know what they're doing. You know, I can certainly tell you that I felt a lot of imposter syndrome at the time and just felt overwhelmed in some cases because it just felt as if there was so much that was unknowable. But I think that it's important to reach out to other people and just ask questions and to keep an open mind and soak up as much information as you can. And to really realize, and I think this is key, there's no one true way and there's no recipe for success. And everyone's going to have a different opinion. 
And just because somebody's successful doesn't mean that they have the right opinion. And just because someone's failed in the past doesn't mean that they have the wrong opinion. And it's important to integrate everybody's viewpoint and just try to find your own voice and figure out what works for you. And I think that part and parcel to that is just having a strong sense and building that strong sense of authenticity and intellectual honesty about about the process. So people naturally know when you're being superficial or inauthentic. And it's important to be passionate and authentic about what you do to let that shine through, to be easy to work with, and to know what you know and what you don't know, and be willing to be upfront about that with other people, and being willing to own mistakes when they occur. The other thing that occurs to me is that it's important to recognize that you shouldn't be trying to over-optimize everything. So I think sometimes people get obsessed with trying to protect every last percentage of equity and optimize every aspect of their position. But I think that's a real mistake. I think they're treating the process as a snapshot rather than looking at the bigger picture that things are going to be constantly evolving. And the reality is that for most entrepreneurs, especially young ones, this will not be your only opportunity and that you'll have plenty of times to do this again and do it in different ways. And the important part is to learn and to evolve. And if you have a really good idea, the important is to accelerate that idea and not over-optimize and slow things down. It's better to have a smaller percentage of something really, really big than have a huge percentage of something that you're just holding back. And so I think that that's always the balancing act, but you shouldn't fall in love and try to over-optimize everything. It's hard to find the balance between being passionate but not being so in love with something that you're unwilling to compromise. And I think that a lot of times people confuse those two things. Great points. And what fantastic tips, Nathaniel. So many founders have had to confront imposter syndrome and being able to call it out is important, as is being open to diversity of thought and knowing when to compromise. I could not agree with you more about the importance of staying passionate, authentic. Thank you very much for sharing these. I like to end by telling the audience a fun fact, story, joke, favorite movie, or even just drink of choice. And so I'll start by sharing mine as we head into the year-end holidays. Uh, I know many can't stand it, but I will admit that I like eggnog, particularly if it's spiked. Anything you're willing to share? Um, you know, I don't know that I have a favorite movie or anything like that. I think that it always constantly evolves. But I will say that I recently saw the movie Dune. I had no idea about what the movie was or what the story was beforehand. And I thought that it was absolutely fantastic. The cinematography was beautiful. And I thought it was a compelling story and had a lot of interesting ideas. So if you enjoy a bit of sci-fi or you just love great cinematography, I would suggest people go out and, and give it a whirl. And if you do, it's it's worth seeing on, on IMAX. I love sci-fi and uh, definitely love the IMAX experience. I have to tell you, I've not been into any sort of a theater in a very, very long time. Tell me, how was that? It sounds like the movie was was fantastic. How did that experience feel to you? Have you, was that your first movie in a, in a long time that you saw in a movie theater? It was the first movie that I probably have seen in, in years. I think the one before that was A Star is Born. So whenever that came out. Yeah, that was, that was a few years ago. Uh, another great movie. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, so... 
Thank you again. And as we continue to have a deeper understanding of emerging science technology, we look at companies like Replicate Biosciences to bring about the next big breakthroughs in RNA therapies. We thank you all so much for joining us. And Nathaniel, we thank you for being our guest on today's podcast. Uh, Again, I learned a lot and very much enjoyed our discussion. I really appreciated it. Thanks so much for having me on. Yes, we wish you and all of you at Replicate Biosciences great continued success on this next phase of your journey. And once again, we thank everyone for joining us. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.